This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In 1994, Dan Baum, a journalist and author, was working on a book about the war on drugs. For research, he tracked down President Richard Nixon's former assistant for domestic affairs, John Ehrlichman. Two decades earlier, Ehrlichman had been sentenced to 18 months in prison for conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and perjury after his involvement in the Watergate scandal. By the mid-90s, Ehrlichman was working at an engineering firm in Atlanta. His political career was long over. When the reporter found him, he began to ask questions about Nixon's drug policies, but Ehrlichman couldn't be bothered to answer. Finally, Ehrlichman snapped and told him bluntly, quote, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. 
When this interview was finally published in Harper's Magazine in 2016, it reignited the fury over what some people had believed for decades. The mass incarceration of the 80s and 90s was about more than just preventing crime. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we'll be taking a second look at the prison industrial complex. For decades, the government has been outsourcing prison operations to private corporations. The first private prison was opened in 1984, and in the years since then, 170 private facilities have sprung up across the U.S. Last week, we went over the official story of how and why private prisons came to prominence. Ostensibly, all these prisons were built to handle the rising incarceration rate that began in the 80s as a result of new drug sentencing laws created during the War on Drugs. According to Think Progress, the federal prison population has increased by 790% since 1980. The sudden spike in the incarceration rate caused massive prison overcrowding, and a few savvy businessmen came up with a solution. Rather than having state governments build and operate new prisons on their own, it would be cheaper and more cost-effective to outsource the job to private companies. Over the years, private prisons have been caught using underhanded tactics to increase their profit margins. We covered a number of scandals last week. Prison corporations have donated money to supportive politicians, lobbied for harsher sentencing laws, bribed judges into handing down unreasonable sentences for minor crimes, and coerced the government into signing contracts with incarceration quotas, guaranteeing that their facilities will stay full. Shady business practices aside, it's generally agreed that even though the prison industry capitalized on the mass incarceration epidemic, It wasn't the initial cause of it. But what if the cause and effect was the other way around? What if the crackdown on drug offenders was actually orchestrated as an excuse to put more people in prison? There are a few alternative explanations for why the prison population has grown so much in the past few decades. Many people believe that there was a wide-reaching conspiracy within the government to put people behind bars for the sake of helping out the private prison industry. These conspiracy theories hold that other agencies and industries had their own nefarious goals that dovetailed perfectly with the prison industry's objective of keeping their facilities full. There are three conspiracy theories we're looking at in depth today, and one wild card that we're throwing in for good measure. First, the CIA created the crack epidemic by planting drugs in inner-city communities. Second, 
The music industry pushed gangster rap to encourage crime and drive up the incarceration rate. Third, the government started the war on drugs as a way to break up black communities. Let's start with one of the most popular theories. The CIA intentionally planted drugs in inner-city communities, leading up to the crack epidemic of the 80s. The story of the CIA's possible involvement in cocaine trafficking is long and murky. It started in the early 1980s, with the conflict in Nicaragua between the Sandinistas and the Contras. The current U.S. president at the time, Ronald Reagan, was concerned that socialist governments around the world were a threat to American interests. Since the end of World War II, the U.S. had been offering support to foreign governments to stop them from falling under the influence of the Soviet Union, including Greece, Turkey, and Afghanistan. Reagan's plan was to use American resources to stop the socialist government in Nicaragua. In 1979, Nicaragua's Socialist Party, called the Sandinistas, overthrew the country's dictator and took control of the government. In the early 80s, not long after the Sandinistas came to power, the CIA spearheaded the organization of a militant opposition force called the Contras to topple the Sandinista government. The CIA's involvement was known from the beginning, but few people realized at the time exactly how big a role the American agency played in the Contra Rebellion. The director of the Nicaraguan Democratic Forces, or FDN, one of the earliest militant Contra organizations, testified to the International Court of Justice that the CIA had set up the meeting and drafted the agreement that led to the formation of the FDN in 1981. In 1982, Reagan signed a directive giving the CIA $19 million in military aid to recruit and support the Contra forces. But two years later, reports broke that CIA agents were carrying out violent acts of sabotage in Nicaragua without informing the Congressional Intelligence Committees beforehand. In response, Congress passed a measure banning the U.S. government from giving any more assistance to the Contras. Officially, the U.S. was not going to be involved in Nicaragua anymore. Publicly, that was the end of U.S. support for the Contras. But investigations that occurred over the next few decades painted a different story. We now know that the CIA actually kept aiding the Contras in secret, using funds they obtained from a variety of covert sources. Most notably, the illegal sale of weapons to Iran, which was publicly uncovered in 1986. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. A series of investigations conducted throughout the 80s and 90s have proven that, as early as 1981, certain members of the Contra leadership had been funding their operations with illegal drug smuggling and trafficking within the U.S. These next events have been mired in controversy, but like the CIA's secret aid to the Contras, they really happened. After the Sandinistas took over Nicaragua, many people who had close ties to the previous government fled to the U.S. Among them was Norwin Meneses, a major cocaine kingpin who continued his drug ring from his new home in Florida. In 1981, Meneses met with a fellow Nicaraguan who had landed in California, a man named Oscar Danilo Blandon Reyes. Blandon had never worked in drug trafficking before, 
but he was far away from his homeland and desperate for any way to make money. Manessez had a proposition for him. The two would work together to sell cocaine in Southern California, and then they would send the profits to the Contra forces back home. Blandon and Manessas discussed their strategy with a Contra agent named Enrique Bermudez, who was the primary contact between the Contras and the Reagan administration. Bermudez strongly encouraged them to raise funds for the Contras from inside the U.S. He never mentioned drugs directly, but Blandon says he assumed Bermudez was aware that the two men were in the cocaine trade. By that time in 1981, Manessas was under active investigation by the FBI and DEA for smuggling and dealing cocaine within the U.S. But it's unclear whether the CIA was aware that Manessas' drug money was going back to the Contras. Aware or not, they didn't look into it until 1988, when the Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a series of hearings on the potential connection between the Contras and cocaine. At the hearings, several Contra leaders testified that some of the money they'd received was from drug profits. Contra pilots admitted that they'd flown weapons down from the U.S. to Nicaragua and returned with their planes full of cocaine, at one point even landing inside an Air Force base in Florida with the planes full of drugs. And DEA officials testified that National Security Council aide Oliver North, who was involved in running the Contra War, once suggested sending $1.5 million in seized drug money to the Contras, a suggestion that was immediately rejected by the DEA. Either way, it's telling that North was unfazed by the idea of sending drug money to the Contras, isn't it? Maybe. After the hearings, critics within the government dismissed all the evidence that was presented. They said the testimony of drug-dealing Contra members couldn't be trusted. The committee's report was buried, and hardly anyone thought twice about it for years. Until 1996, when a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter named Gary Webb ran a series of articles about the Contra drug connection in the San Jose Mercury News. He used government documents and the testimony of dozens of Contra leaders to prove what the Senate investigation suggested in 1988. He posited that the CIA was aware of and complicit in the international cocaine trafficking that was funding the Contras in their war against the Nicaraguan government. Webb's series met the same kind of criticism that befell the Senate investigation. Government agencies and other journalists criticized him for reporting incomplete facts, trusting unreliable witnesses, and making a few factual errors in his reporting. While it was eventually accepted that the Contras were receiving profits from cocaine trafficking, the idea that the CIA was aware of the trafficking was dismissed as a conspiracy theory founded on insufficient evidence. Webb's counterpoint, of course, was that he had tried to corroborate his witnesses' stories with official documents, but most of his requests under the Freedom of Information Act were denied or ignored. From his perspective, it was clear that the government was trying to discredit him to cover up the truth of the story he'd stumbled upon. And the truth, as he reported it, went deeper than using dirty money to fund a foreign war. He connected the dots to imply that the CIA was responsible for the crack epidemic that had devastated inner cities in the 80s. 
In the early 80s, Danilo Blandon, the contra-connected cocaine dealer we mentioned earlier, became the primary supplier for one of South Central LA's pioneering crack kingpins, a man called Freeway Ricky Ross. Not long after crack first appeared on the streets of LA around 1980, Ricky Ross had become one of the most powerful dealers in the city. An LA Times reporter once called him, quote, the first crack millionaire to rise from the streets of South Central, end quote. He's generally credited as one of the key figures in the popularization of crack in L.A. Ross's success was largely because he had access to obtain large quantities of cheap, extremely pure Nicaraguan cocaine through Blandon. This made him able to distribute cocaine at a lower price than his competitors while still reaping an enormous profit. By 1982, Ross claims he was selling up to $3 million worth of cocaine per day by cooking it down into crack and distributing it through both the Bloods and Crips street gangs. It wasn't long before he expanded his empire all across the country, from Texas to New Orleans to Cincinnati. And all that crack he was selling was made from cocaine he bought from Blandon, who, in turn, was sending his own profits to the Contras. Okay, so there's evidence the CIA was aware the Contras were smuggling cocaine. And there's evidence the cocaine smuggled by Contra members was connected to the spread of crack within major cities. But does that mean the CIA willingly allowed the crack epidemic to happen? Here's the conspiracy theory Gary Webb put forward. The CIA was not only aware that Blandone was smuggling drugs into inner-city L.A. to be turned into crack, but they were also actively protecting him from prosecution. It was a perfect situation for the CIA. Their Contra war was being fully funded, and the only people being affected by it were poor inner-city drug users, a demographic they didn't have any particular motivation to protect. But this was happening at the same time as the Reagan administration was waging their war on drugs. It doesn't make any sense that they'd allow cocaine to be smuggled into the country while they were going through so much effort to prosecute crack offenders. Or does it? Let's imagine that the government realized drug trafficking was the most practical way to fund the Contra war. Inevitably, that will produce a surplus of drug dealers and addicts. That puts them into a catch-22. It would look bad to do nothing about this visible drug epidemic, but if they actually stop the drug trade, there goes the Contra funding. So how do you appear to be dealing with a crack epidemic without actually slowing down the crack trade at all? The answer is imprisonment. We did mention last week that a government study in the 70s had shown that increased incarceration has no significant effect on the crime rate. So why did the government answer the crack epidemic with harsher drug sentences? Because they weren't trying to stop crime at all. And the rise in incarceration did help the burgeoning private prison industry too, didn't it? And some private prison corporations have a history of donating to political campaigns and lobbying groups. It's a win-win situation for everyone. Okay, let's slow down. This is a great theory, but is there any actual proof? Do we know if the CIA did anything to protect Blandon's drug trade? Well, in 1986, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department raided 13 locations that were known to be used for Blandon's drug operations. 
but they didn't find any drugs at any of them. It was speculated that the CIA tipped Blandone off about the sheriff's search warrants in an effort to protect him. But when the Justice Department investigated the matter, Blandon said that he hadn't been tipped off about the raids by any government officials. He'd been told by his associates that the FBI was asking questions about him, so he changed locations on his own before the Sheriff's Department had a chance to perform the raids. That's why no drugs were found. There's also the fact that after Blandon was finally prosecuted for drug trafficking in 1992, He was suddenly released from prison after 28 months. He walked right back into his old drug ring as an informant for the DEA. How would such a major cocaine smuggler be allowed to walk free after 28 months unless the CIA was pulling the strings to protect their asset? Well, after Blandon's release, he participated in a sting to bring down Ricky Ross, who the DEA apparently considered a bigger threat at that point. But why was a crack dealer considered a bigger threat than his supplier, who was smuggling the drugs into the country in the first place? By the time Blandon was prosecuted in 92, Ricky Ross had branched out to other suppliers. Blandon's cocaine was only a small piece of his operation. Okay, I guess that's fair. After Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series was published in 1996, the CIA director, John Deutsch, began an investigation into the agency's involvement in the crack and cocaine trade in South Central Los Angeles. He held a town hall meeting assuring the community he would find the truth. No one who heads a government agency, not myself or anyone else, can let such an allegation stand. I will get to the bottom of it, and I will let you know the results of what I found. But some of the meeting's 800 attendees doubted the investigation would be fair. How are we supposed to trust the CIA official to investigate themselves? I mean, we, we are having a problem with that. At the end of the CIA's investigation, they released a two-volume report confirming that they found no evidence that anyone acting on behalf of the CIA had ever worked with Ricky Ross, Blandon, Manessis, or anyone else mentioned in Dark Alliance. They also found no evidence that Blandon or Manessis sent significant amounts of their drug trafficking profits to the Contras. Maybe the Nicaraguan rebel army just didn't keep a meticulous record of the illegal drug money they received. Even if they did send millions of dollars of drug money to the Contras, as the Dark Alliance series reported, it could have been done without the CIA's knowledge or permission. But maybe the CIA is covering up evidence to protect themselves. Can we trust them to investigate their own agency? Well, they've released the entire reports of their investigation to the public. Anyone who wants to examine the evidence themselves is free to do so and draw their own conclusions. As for us, Looking at the evidence, I think it's fair to say that the CIA was aware Contra leaders were involved in drug smuggling, and for whatever reason, they didn't take the appropriate steps to stop it. But did government agencies actively conspire to bring cocaine into inner-city communities? No. Overall, I'd give this theory a 5 out of 10 for believability. Our next conspiracy theory is a little wackier than the last one. The music industry pushed the gangster rap genre in an attempt to glamorize violent crime and funnel young people into the prison industry. Wacky, definitely. But is it likely? Maybe more so than you think. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, the story continues. We just ghetto reporting, really. You know what I'm saying? Just letting people know that this is the type of things that goes on where we from we've been through that stuff but but we're, we're letting you know what's happening here and, and somebody needs to do something about it we need help that was rapper warren g speaking in 1997 about a style of hip-hop music known as gangster rap artists like warren g deny that their music's focus on drugs sex and violence is meant to encourage kids to become criminals but maybe there's more to the story than that You might have expected the CIA to be a target of conspiracy theories involving the prison industrial complex. But our second conspiracy theory involves an unexpected player, record labels. This one comes from an anonymous email that was posted to the blog hiphopisred.com in 2012. The sender of the email, who refused to give their name, claimed to be an executive of an established record label in the late 80s and early 90s. According to the message, in 1991, this executive was invited to a closed-door meeting at a private residence in Los Angeles, where about 25 to 30 music business insiders were gathered to discuss the future of rap music. When the meeting began, everyone in attendance was asked to sign a confidentiality agreement forbidding them from discussing anything that happened during the meeting. A few people refused to sign the agreement and left, but our anonymous writer went along with it out of curiosity. Then a man who introduced himself only with his first name took the floor and, in vague terms, told them that the record companies the attendees worked for had all invested money in a very profitable new industry, building privately owned prisons. Since the record labels had become investors in the prison business, It was in their financial interest to make sure those prisons were filled. Their job, now, would be to market music, promoting criminal behavior. According to the blog post, the room went silent. 
The music industry insiders weren't as receptive to the idea as the prison execs expected. Finally, someone broke the silence by shouting, is this a joke? The room devolved into chaos as two men attempted to remove the man who shouted from the room. One of them pulled out a gun to stop the attendees from intervening. The anonymous letter writer's colleague who had organized the meeting reminded everyone present that they'd signed a confidentiality agreement and would face the consequences if they ever spoke about the meeting again. The agreement they signed said they'd lose their jobs if they came forward. But after the violence that disrupted the meeting, this writer was afraid the consequences might go deeper than that. He went back to work the next day and didn't mention the meeting to anyone, afraid of what might happen to him and his family if he came forward. After a few months, he noticed that rap music had changed direction. Politically focused rap groups were fading away, and gangster rap was climbing the charts. Even without his cooperation, the chilling plan had gone off. The entire story was submitted to a small blog site by an anonymous source who refuses to confirm his identity. In all likelihood, it's just a hoax. But for the sake of argument, let's imagine it's true. The two biggest private prison corporations, CCA and Geo Group, are publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Individual music industry personnel could have certainly purchased stock in the corporations. Okay, then let's talk about what we know about gangster rap. Although gangster rap often includes social commentary on the circumstances that led inner city youth into gang affiliation, It was widely seen by mainstream society as glorifying and encouraging crime and violence. From its origin, hip-hop was mainly consumed by the small audience of black teens and young adults in urban areas. But on June 22, 1991, something changed. Gangster rap group N.W.A. became the first rap group to reach number one on the Billboard 200 charts. From that moment on, gangster rap was the dominant force in the hip-hop sphere for the rest of the decade. That timeline does line up with the meeting in 1991 that the anonymous letter described, doesn't it? It does, but it doesn't prove the record industry had orchestrated the sudden popularity of the genre. True, but the music industry isn't driven purely by consumers' listening preferences. The money investors and promoters funnel into marketing and radio stations is a major factor in what songs become hits. The crucial difference for gangster rap could have been that, for the first time, record labels were actively attempting to market rap music to white suburban audiences. Whether it was a coincidence or corporate engineering, the older generation was afraid obscene rap music would corrupt the youth of the nation and turn them into criminals. There were protests around the country decrying the music's influence. Tucker and about two dozen clergy members marched in the rain outside a tower record store near the White House yesterday. Her main target is the new album by the rap group The Dog Pound. She says the album, Dog Food, is unfit for human consumption. It has depicted and glorified sex, drugs, violence, saying murder is cool. This is not the kind of gift that we should be sending to children. Dog food is for dogs. Tucker is focusing on Tower because it's promoting the album in its holiday ads. She says the protest is the first step in what she says will be a renewed national campaign to wipe out gangster rap. Oscar Wells Gabriel, Washington. Gangster rap is Their fear was unnecessary. 
Decades later, there's no evidence that gangster rap actually encouraged crime among youth to rise. Actually, The Atlantic analyzed FBI crime data alongside the chart positions of hip-hop singles and found that, as rap became more popular, overall crime and violent crime both declined. So if this was all a conspiracy to raise the crime rate, it backfired. The simplest explanation is that if record labels did push for gangster rap, it was probably because it had proven to be a profitable genre. Unless the writer of this anonymous letter that started the rumor comes forward and identifies themselves, I'm going to have to dismiss it as a hoax. As entertaining as it is to think about, this theory gets a 1 out of 10. Next up is a conspiracy theory we hinted at earlier. Was mass incarceration a government scheme to disrupt and subjugate black communities? We'll return to our story in just a moment. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now our story continues. Our third conspiracy theory is that the war on drugs was orchestrated for the purpose of incarcerating the black population. Ever since Nixon declared his war on drugs in the 70s, there have been rumors that the government was using their harsh drug penalties as a way to disrupt the black communities that had grown stronger during the previous decade's civil rights movement. This theory is controversial, but it's not baseless. It's easy to see why the idea is so popular, looking at the data surrounding drug sentencing. We aren't taking a stance either way, but we think it's worth presenting the data. According to a 2010 study from the Prison Policy Initiative, 40% of the inmates in the U.S. prison system are black, even though only 13% of the total U.S. population is black. Although there are disparities between racial groups in most types of crime, the area where the numbers really don't line up is drug sentencing. FBI crime data shows that of all the black men currently serving time in federal prisons, 48.5% were sentenced for drug offenses. Black men are five times more likely to be arrested for a drug offense than white men. And this isn't because of a difference in the rate of drug use between different racial groups. According to the National Household Survey on Drug Abuse, white and black populations use illegal drugs at similar rates. In 1998, Crime statistics reported by the Justice Department show that 35% of the people arrested for drug possession and 74% of all people who were sent to prison for drug possession were black. But again, only 13% of the overall population was black. 
The question then becomes, for conspiracy theories, is this the accidental consequence of a faulty justice system? Or is the system working exactly the way it was set up to? The rumors of racial bias in the justice system that sprung up during the 70s and 80s were difficult to deny because there was already proof that the justice system had been directly targeting black community leaders just a few years earlier. In 1971, the same year Nixon gave his speech coining the phrase war on drugs, an activist group called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into a field office and stole documents regarding a secret intelligence program called COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program. What the documents exposed was shocking. A 15-year FBI operation aimed at infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting organizations they labeled subversive, including civil rights and black power movement activists. A memo stated the program's goal was to, quote, prevent militant black nationalist groups and leaders from gaining respectability by discrediting them, end quote. Their tactics included illegal searches and break-ins, harassing their targets with phony legal charges, and giving perjured testimony and evidence to lead to false arrests. Now, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but make no mistake, Pro was real. After the program was exposed, the FBI ended Pro as a centralized operation. So the logic goes, without Pro, the government needed a new way to discredit the civil rights groups they deemed dangerous to the social order. And that's where the war on drugs comes in. The most obvious evidence that the war on drugs was intended as racial warfare is the quote we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. One of the chief architects behind Nixon's drug policy, John Ehrlichman, freely admitted that the entire purpose of the drug war was to disrupt black communities and discredit them in the eyes of the public, the same way Cointelpro had done it before it was shut down. On face value, that is pretty convincing. But skeptics think Ehrlichman might have been lying. His career was ruined by the Watergate scandal, so he had a bone to pick with Nixon. His supposed confession might have just been the ranting of a disgruntled ex-employee. But Dan Baum, the writer who spoke to Ehrlichman, was convinced he was being honest. After he published the comments in 2016, Baum said, quote, I think Ehrlichman was waiting for someone to come and ask him. I think he felt bad about it. These guys knew they'd done bad things. And they were glad, finally, when it was no longer going to cost them anything to be able to talk about it to atone for it. After hearing Ehrlichman's comments, Nixon's former counsel, John Dean, told the New York Daily News, quote, it's startling, but based on my listening of the tapes of Nixon's White House conversations, it's certainly possible, end quote. And it lines up with the drug laws that were pushed during the next two decades. For example, there were the crack sentencing laws passed in 1986 that made the sentences for possession or trafficking of crack 100 times more severe than the sentences for powder cocaine. Because of the media coverage of the inner city crack epidemic, crack was commonly associated with economically disadvantaged black users, while powder cocaine, due to its steep price, had a long reputation as a party drug associated with affluent, primarily white users. 
But crack is also more dangerous than cocaine, since its concentrated form presents a higher chance of addiction or overdose. In addition to that, the violence and gang activity that came along with the crack trade was considered a bigger danger to public safety than the powder cocaine trade. That could have easily been the motivation for the harsher sentences. But racial biases are at play there, too. There's a long history in American culture of stereotyping black men as more dangerous and prone to crime than white men. In 1968, the court ruling Terry v. Ohio upheld the right of police officers to stop, question, and frisk anyone that they have, quote, reasonable suspicion to believe is dangerous. In practice, reasonable suspicion can mean just about anything. Beginning in 1984, a DEA program called Operation Pipeline began training police on how to use minor traffic violations as a pretext to search cars for drugs. The list of behaviors considered reasonably suspicious by the Operation Pipeline manual includes driving too fast, driving too slowly, acting nervous, acting calm, traveling with luggage, traveling with no luggage. Basically, according to conspiracy theorists, anything could be used as justification for a search. As soon as these policies went into effect, it seemed self-apparent to racial minorities that they were being disproportionately targeted for searches. Unfortunately, the police force didn't keep adequate data on their reasonable suspicion searches. So for decades, there was no way to prove it. More recently, public interests in racial profiling has led to studies that conspiracy theorists claim confirm what minorities had been saying since the 70s. During a 2013 district court case challenging New York City's stop-and-frisk program, statistics from studies done by the Center for Constitutional Rights were brought forward showing that, of the 4.4 million stop-and-frisk that occurred in the city between 2004 and 2012, about 83% of the people stopped were black or Latino. And according to those same studies, only 6% of those 4.4 million stops resulted in arrests. It turns out stopping random citizens based on vague profiles isn't a very effective way to weed out drug users. But when it's practiced widely across the country for decades, the arrests add up. And since the majority of the people being stopped were black or Latino, it follows that the majority of the people who wound up in jail were also black or Latino. So we've established that the drug laws of the 70s and 80s disproportionately targeted black people. But could it have been coincidental? Where's the motivation? Well, there's the reasoning John Ehrlichman gave us. Black demographics tended to vote against conservative politicians like Nixon and Reagan. By imprisoning as many of them as possible, their communities would have less political power, since anyone convicted of a felony is ineligible to vote while incarcerated. It does make sense. There was already the precedent of the FBI's COINTELPRO program, so the idea of attacking black community leaders through phony arrests wasn't new to the government. But aside from the word of one former official, there's no tangible evidence that was the actual motivation behind the war on drugs. All right, let's look at all the facts we do have all together. There's a long history of the criminal justice system specifically targeting black communities. 
from the convict leasing system of the post-Civil War South to the FBI's COINTELPRO operation. Statistics show that the legislation passed during the war on drugs disproportionately affected black people. Politicians like Nixon and Reagan, who supported the war on drugs, would appear to benefit politically from the disruption of black communities caused by their drug policies. That sounds like some pretty compelling evidence. It is. But again, the thing that's missing is concrete proof. We can speculate that political leaders and law enforcement agencies colluded to target black communities with the war on drugs. But it's also possible that the racial disparities in the prison system were an unintended consequence of pre-existing cultural biases. Still, I'll rate this theory's believability as 9 out of 10. And that brings us to our final conspiracy theory, which is a real wild card, but one we wanted to address due to its popularity. Have you ever noticed that the public school and libraries in low-income neighborhoods tend to have less funding than those in wealthier neighborhoods? This is generally regarded as a problem because uneducated, illiterate children are more likely to grow up to commit crimes. But who benefits from a lower literacy rate? Private prisons. The link between illiteracy and crime is clear. The Literacy Project Foundation reported that three out of five people in U.S. prisons can't read, and Kids at Risk Action estimates the number at closer to 75 percent. Some conspiracy theorists believe the private prison industry is actively pushing to defund schools and libraries to encourage crime and keep their facilities full. Last week, we covered the history of private prison corporations donating to politicians and lobbying groups that pushed harsher crime legislation and increased spending on incarceration. It wouldn't be totally out of line to suggest that, while lobbying for a bigger incarceration budget, they might have encouraged politicians to cut the education budget to balance it out. But there's no evidence of that. We'll never know what might have been discussed behind closed doors. You're right. But without proof, we can't say the prison industry is working to destroy public schools. I'll give this a 1 out of 10. So we've now explored all of these theories. Let's talk about what we think is really happening here with the prison industrial complex. Our verdict, based on the evidence, we don't believe mass incarceration was a giant conspiracy to benefit the private prison industry. The war on drugs, international cocaine trafficking, racial bias, and political concerns were all factors involved in the sudden spike in the prison population during the 80s and 90s. But there isn't quite enough evidence to say any of these factors were aimed at benefiting the private prison industry. It's possible, even highly likely, that one or more of the groups we discussed had nefarious motivations for encouraging mass incarceration, We did give it a 9 out of 10 believability that the war on drugs consisted of some racial motivation. But the missing piece is the conspiratorial part of conspiracy theory. There's just not enough to tie the private prison industry's involvement into any of these theories. Private prisons definitely seized on the growing incarceration rate by supporting legislation and contracts that drove the prison population up even higher but it's unlikely that they were the driving force behind it from the beginning. We have to agree with the official explanation. Private prisons might have been an opportunistic scheme to profit off the rising incarceration rate, 
But mass incarceration wasn't a scheme to benefit the private prisons. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. I know it seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more Conspiracy Theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.